verses 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Uh, just to give a little introduction, uh, I see some new faces here. We're in our fourth sermon in a series entitled Being a Cross-Eyed Church. Um, and what we're doing is we're taking the next two and a half months to walk through 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4. And we're basically asking this question, how does the gospel, the cross of Jesus, relate to the church? How does those two things relate? And last week we talked about the unity of the church. We said that the only way our church will be unified is when we are first united to Jesus. And I, and I had said this, that unity quite literally begins. Unity, you and I tied to Christ. And then some of you came up to me after service because you were itching for me to finish the acronym. Unity, you said, you and I, and you asked me, what does the T-U-I stand for? I'm sorry I let you down. I, um, I had thought, you know, you and I, thank you? <laughs> no, I, did, I didn't know how to finish the T-I-T-Y. So, um, so, but today what we're looking at is we're considering the cross of Christ and its implications to the church. Okay, so you have the cross. You have what Christians believe about the cross. What does that have anything to do with the church? And so... With that, we're turning our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Father, in this next hour, we turn our attention to your word. Father, you have called us to behold your majesty. And when we felt the inadequacy of ourselves and our sin, you have given us mercy in Jesus. You have welcomed us to be members of your household, and now you charge us with your message. And we, your people, we want to hear. We want to be built up. We want to understand. We want to know what it means to live now as God's people, as members of the household of faith. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and awaken our hearts so that we would hear and understand. Maybe some of these are old truths, but would they be stirred up in new ways? Maybe some of these are new truths, but may they make lasting convictions in our hearts and our lives. Father, so bless this time, because even the preaching is unto your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, the past three weeks, I've been emphasizing... <laughs> I've been emphasizing that we need to be a cross-eyed church. And I've been basically making this simple argument. That in, any, that in order for the church to bring any glory to God, and for the church to be of any good to the world, we need to be a cross-eyed church. If we want to bring God glory and we want to be of good to the world, we need to be centered on the cross of Christ. In today's passage, Paul explains to the Corinthians a little more in greater detail the cross and its implications for the church. 
Now, before I get to the text, I want to clarify something. When we say, or when I say the cross, uh, I think so many times people often um, get confused because when we say the cross, we may uh, think that the cross itself, as the symbol of Christianity, somehow that becomes the focus of the gospel, as if the cross as an object has some kind of a mystical power. But whenever I say the cross, I mean the cross of Christ. I think a lot of us, we, when we look at the cross or we uh, see the cross in pop culture or the way it's displayed, and we get wrong impressions. Uh, I, I have a preacher friend, a pastor friend, who tells this, this really funny story. He was in, uh, this was in the early 90s, and he was invited as a seminarian to speak at this really charismatic youth retreat. And he, he's always careful not to stumble people when he tells the story. But basically, he went to this um, charismatic youth retreat, and he was preaching. And, and one evening, they were having a prayer time, and this little girl, um, was people thought she was demon-possessed, and she was convulsing, and she couldn't be restrained. This is this little middle school girl. And so, you know, they said, you're a seminarian, why don't you come over? And they, they called him over, and he came uh, they wanted him to lay hands on her, and, and he laid hands on her, and this 90-pound girl picked him up and threw him across the room into a pile of chairs. Um, and he, so here he was. He was 23. He has no idea what to do. He had just seen the exorcist. <laughs> so he took the cross off of his chest and just went up there <laughs> and just started touching her with the cross, and she was shrieking every time he touched her. You know, and I think to myself, you know, what would you have done? Well, what makes this thing, oh, if I take the Bible and I touch her, that's going to take care of the situation. If I take the cross and I touch her, what makes us think that? I mean, it's, it's this common portrayal that we see in the movies that, oh, the cross has this mystical kind of power, and if we touch people with it, amazing things will happen. But let me tell you this. The cross of Christ only has power because of the one crucified on the cross. The cross itself is just a wooden object or a piece of metal, a piece of gold or silver. So when I say cross, when I, when I say cross-eyed church, please don't substitute, forget about Jesus and think of the object itself. When I say cross-eyed church, I mean a Christ-centered church. The gospel truth we want to look at today is this. The truths of the cross direct the posture of the church. So some truths of the cross is going to direct the posture and the attitude of the church. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take four uh, we're going to look at four things about the cross and its implications. So I'm going to do fact about the cross and its implication, fact about the cross and its implication. So four of these. First is this, the cross divides. That's fact number one, the cross divides. And here's the implication. If the cross divides, we must have a burden for the perishing. The fact, the cross divides, the implication, we must have a burden for the perishing. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 18, because this is what Paul writes. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, remember the context of verse 18, because what we talked about last week in verses 10 to 17 was Paul was addressing the division in the church. The church was divided, and they were divided because they had different allegiances to Christian leaders. And Paul writes to them, and he rebukes them, he reminds them, no more division, be united in Christ. This is ironic. Now, right after addressing the harmful divisions in the church, Paul goes on and he draws his own line of division. Now, this is not Paul's assessment of the world. This is what the cross does. The cross divides the world between those who are perishing and those who are saved. 
Because people will either cling to the cross or they will despise the cross. You see, in verses 10 to 17, we learn that the cross of Christ unites. But then in verse 18 and on, we learn that the cross of Christ divides. You know, when Paul says the word of the cross, uh, it can also be translated as the proclamation of the cross. Basically, what he means is the gospel. The word of the cross is the gospel. Some people in this world, you're going to hear the gospel, and they're going to conclude, that's utterly ridiculous. That's irrational. That's nonsensical. It's ludicrous. They will reject it. They will have nothing to do with it. And the same people in the same room who heard the same gospel would exclaim, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. They will accept it. Their lives will be transformed and shaped around this news. There is no third response. People will either receive the gospel or people will reject the gospel. And I wonder then to ask you, which group do you fall into? Which group do you fall into? When you hear the gospel, do you dismiss it in disgust or do you receive it in thanksgiving? Now, I was debating uh, how confrontational I would be. I thought, you know, this is only my fourth week here, but, but this is such an important point. If the cross divides, when you hear this word, where are you right now, in this moment, do you receive the cross in joy or you turn away for it, from it in disgust? Because, listen, there's so much at stake here. If the world is separating between those who are perishing, in ruin, toward destruction, and those who are being saved, that leaves no margin for error. It leaves no room for ambiguity in your faith. You can't be in between. Nobody can be in between. Nobody can straddle the divide. There is no neutrality. And so if you do not believe this afternoon, I urge you to consider the Christian claims. If you're on the fence, I urge you to make a decision. If you say, I don't know enough, I urge you to learn more. If you say, I have more questions, I urge you to find the answers. Now, if you are a believer, if the cross is beautiful to you, you should have a weight, a real burden for those who look at the cross and they just feel it is nonsense. You know, coming into this church and hearing all the, the prayers as Elder Moon prayed, as we pray in the Wednesday prayer meetings about people's physical ailments, and their sicknesses in the church. I mean, that calls us to be what? Compassionate. It calls us to be prayerful. But what about these spiritual ailments and the soul sickness of friends and family who don't know Jesus? What does that cause us to be? So often it's nonchalant, unconcerned, uninterested. Here's the thing. If they are not in, they are out. People who don't believe, it's not merely that they're socially excluded from this, uh, uh, a chummy community that they can find in the church. It's not merely that they're empty inside or merely that they've stepped off from the wrong path. If the cross divides and they do not believe, they are barred from the eternal kingdom. They are, they are destined to death and destruction of the soul. They are disqualified from the banquet table of heaven because they rely only on themselves and, and look to themselves as their own saviors. And therefore, Paul is not being overdramatic when he uses the word perishing. I mean, that seems like a big word. Perishing. But Paul is merely painting the reality. 
What does that mean? If we are to be a cross-eyed church, and the cross divides the world between those who are perishing and those who are being saved, then we need to be burdened by those who do not know Jesus. We can't be content just celebrating our own salvation. Oh, we are so glad we are saved. Yes, celebrate that, rejoice in that, but have a deep concern from those who do not have the same joy you have, the same security. You know, Jesus knew this about the world. And Luke records this, that Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to weep. Luke 19, 41 to 42. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. We should not excuse ourselves from active involvement in things like evangelism and outreach and missions because there is still hope for those who are rejecting the gospel. If you look very carefully, Paul says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, not those who are perished. It's a present participle. All that means is this. Paul is saying these people who reject Jesus are on the way to perishing which is really good news because it means they are not there yet. There is still hope for them. Now, I know that the children are still in here, so I'll use this example. Have you ever watched the movie Toy Story 3? Great movie. Makes you break down in tears. But there's this scene that I think is way too intense to be a children's movie when Andy's toys are... Um, they're in this uh, conveyor belt thing, and they're headed toward a furnace to be incinerated. If you remember that scene, it's so suspenseful, because if you've grown up with it, you've seen Toy Story 1 and 2, and it's the third one, and it's so emotional, it's so dramatic. And they're on their way to destruction. They're on their way to being perishing. But that's not the final end, because in this great moment of hope, the, those three-eyed aliens, do you remember this? The claw. They send the claw to come and to pick them up, to save them from destruction, to save them from their inevitable end, except there is hope. In the same way, it's not the claw that comes and saves us, but it's the cross. The cross is still hope for those who are on the way to destruction, on the way to perishing. And so what does that mean as a cross-eyed church? That doesn't mean we stand here in our holy huddle and we say, well, that's good for them because or that, that's good because that's justice. They're rejecting. No, what that does is it fills us with hope. It encourages us to go out, to evangelize, to engage in outreach and missions with family, friends, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, employers, employees, because there is hope that they yet still might be saved. The simple point, if the cross divides people, and we are on one side, that is not for us to say, yes, thank God we're not there, but to look to those and to long for their salvation. The cross of Christ divides, so we must have a burden for the perishing. Amen? Fact number two, the cross offends. And as I'm speaking, some of you may actually be very offended. Man, that guy is bold. <laughs> Can't believe it's only his third, fourth week and he's saying those things. Fact two, the cross offends, and the implication is this. We must not be part of the offense. The cross offends. We must not be a part of the offense. The problem for many Christians is this, the, the seeming embarrassment about the message of Christianity. 
Why? Because the cross is so offensive. The cross is offensive to our sensibilities. Because there's not any, there, there's not just people who refuse to believe. There are those who refuse to believe, but there are those who actively deny and reject. They hate the message. There's a famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens. He passed away in, in 2011. But in 2008, I got to see him. He was doing a tour, uh, a debate. He was debating uh, another Christian pastor. It was called the Collision Tour. And um, he was doing this in 2008, and all of this led to this book that he came out with in 2009 called God is Not Great. And the subtitle of the book is How Religion Poisons Everything. You know, a lot of people reject Christianity, but they'll say, but Jesus was a good teacher. He taught a lot of good things. But this person said, God is not only not great, but religion poisons. It's hurtful to the world. This is not simply, I don't want to believe. This is, I don't think anybody should believe this. This is bad for society. But that's the nature of the cross. It offends people and those who hear it. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Paul goes on to write, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, but when you've talked with non-Christians, maybe you've heard this kind of come up before. Some people object to Christianity, object to the message of the gospel, and they say this. It goes against our modern sensibilities. We're no longer primitive like the, those ancient people, right? Somebody dying, a sacrifice, that's such a primitive type of religion. And they say things like, you know, it was easier for them to believe than it is for us to believe, right? We have science. They didn't have science. They needed some way to explain the world. So it was, it's less offensive to them, more offensive to us. But this is actually really wrong. Because listen to what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that the cross is offensive even to Jews and Gentiles. It's not just offensive to modern people. It's offensive to all people. And the reason that the cross offends is because everybody wants to measure the merit of Christianity according to their own standard for rationality, right? Everyone wants to measure the truthfulness of Christianity depending on what makes sense to them, what satisfies them. And Paul actually goes on, he writes this. He says, um, for Jews demand signs. The Jews were rejecting the gospel. Why? Because they were demanding signs. Remember the Jewish history all throughout the Old Testament. They had amazing signs happen. Like the Red Sea was parted. Manna and quail came from the from the sky, Moses hit a rock and water came, and they walked around a city and its walls. So there were all these great signs, and so the Jews demanded signs. But they were so oblivious, because what did Jesus do when he was walking this earth? He was doing all, he was walking on water, he was healing people, he was turning a few fish into baskets full of fish and bread. And in fact, the Jews were actually most blind to the greatest sign of them all, which is the resurrection. That Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the reason that the Jews, even though they were seeing the signs, were rejecting it, is because Jesus didn't meet their expectation. Jews, they wanted a political and military leader. They wanted a conqueror to come to splatter, you know, the blood of the enemies. They wanted that kind of ruler. Instead, Jesus came as a lamb. Jesus came to be slaughtered. Jesus' garments were splattered with his own blood. And so the Jews, they saw this. They thought crucified Messiah, and it was an oxymoron to them. I had one pastor explain to me, he said, it was like thinking of fried ice. A crucified Messiah, Messiah is a, a conqueror. How can he be crucified? In fact, the Jews, 
believed that anybody who was hung on a tree or cross was a cursed man because Deuteronomy 21:23 says, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And so they looked at Jesus and they said, how could he be the Savior? That's offensive that you would even claim that. And so it was a stumbling block to them. That's what Paul calls it, a stumbling block. And that Greek word for stumbling block is actually the word scandal. The cross is the greatest scandal of history. You know, we're in a season of, uh, you know, political campaigns, all three debates. We see things recorded, things coming out. We see, you know, all the things people did and all the things people said. And we go, oh, that's a scandal. But, man, what happened in the, in the Bible and the cross and the gospel message blows it all out of the water. The promised Messiah dies a criminal's death. And the Jews say, that's nonsense. That makes no sense. That's offensive. I don't even want to believe in that. And then Paul says that the cross is even offensive to Greeks. And by Greek, he means Gentiles, anyone who's a non-Jew. And it says here that the Greeks, what are they seeking? They're seeking wisdom. The Greeks were philosophers. They loved philosophy. Philosophy, if you, if you know, means the love of wisdom. But here's the thing. Um, when we think philosophy, Greek, and we think Greeks and philosophy, we think Aristotle, we think Plato, we think all this kind of abstract stuff. Uh, that's actually anachronistic. That's not what's happening at this time. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians, it's no long, it's not about all of, it's not about Plato and the forms and all that kind of abstract stuff. The Corinthians, the wisdom they, lo- they loved was a practical kind of wisdom, a pragmatic wisdom. We've talked about this. They loved great speakers, orators, rhetoricians, eloquence, persuasions. They loved things that impressed. Well, then, if they love all that stuff and they hear the message of the gospel, what's impressive about the cross? God came to the world. He took on the form of man. He lived 30 years as a poor carpenter. God was crucified in the hands of man. What's impressive about that? What's wise about that? In fact, a piece of ancient graffiti was discovered in Rome. Uh, It was shown up here on the PowerPoint, if you could turn to it. Uh, This displays accurately how the Gentiles at the time the New Testament had thought of the cross in Christianity. This is a piece of ancient graffiti found in an archaeological dig. It's a picture that depicts a crucified man. He's on the cross, and if you know, he has the head of a donkey. And the inscription reads this, Alexa Menos worships his gods. And this is what, peop- this is what the Greeks thought of the cross, that we're foolish, that we represent a man with a a donkey's head. You know, that word folly to the Gentiles, that word folly to the Gentiles, um, if I were to put it in um, middle school terms, stupid. That's what the translation is, moronic, idiotic, stupid. You see, this is how offensive, you you could take the picture away, this is how offensive the cross was both to Jews and to Gentiles. It's, It's not the offensiveness of the cross is not just a modern objection to Christianity. Some people think, well, then how can we stay faithful to such an offensive message? And the answer is this. If you change the message of the cross, it is no longer the power of God to save. We can change our approach, we can change our method, but we can never change the message. So here, but, but here's the thing. Why? Here's the question for you. Why is the cross, why do you think the cross of Christ is so offensive to modern people? I mean, here's my take at it. When we explain the message of the cross of Christ, we're essentially saying to people something like this. You are so wicked and so bad. You are so sinful 
that the only way to clear and to forgive your bad behaviors, words, thoughts, and motives was for the God of the universe to come to this earth, to take on a human body like yours, to be nailed in between two beams of wood in the most cruelest criminal execution. That's how bad you are. Now, that's incredibly offensive. You know, it's already offensive to say this to somebody. You can't save yourself. You are nowhere near good enough. You have no ability to be as good as you need to be. You need to rely on the works of another. That's already offensive. And then you're adding to that. Not only are you not good enough, but you're so bad that you needed somebody else to take your place to die because God was so offended by your sin. That is an offensive message. I get it. In a cross-eyed church, as a cross-eyed church, our message, this, me- this gospel we hold to, this gospel that we must cling to, is an offensive message. It's not popular. But here's the thing. Although we, the church, hold to an offensive message, we must never be a part of the offense. As God's people, we share an offensive message, but we must not be the reason people are offended. Too often that is the case. You go to uh, sometimes these uh, preachers, soapbox preachers, right? And they are preaching, and it's not the message that's offending people. It's them. The things that they're, not just what they're proclaiming about Jesus, but, but all the ways in which they are dismissive. They're full of hate sometimes. We hold to an offensive message, but we are called to speak it, to share it in love, in compassion, in patience. You know, people who interact with us, if you ever share the gospel, yeah, they will most likely say, I don't like that message. But may they never say, I don't like that messenger. Because as soon as they say that, I don't like that person, I don't like that messenger, you have stood before the cross. You have offended. So don't try to change the message in order to make it more agreeable or easier to swallow. Stay faithful to it, but make sure you don't get in the way of offense. The cross of Christ offends, so we must not be a part of the offense. Amen? Fact three. The cross saves. The implication, we must be faithful to that message. The cross saves, so we must be faithful to that message. Any church that focuses on the message of the cross will not be popular. But here's the good news. God doesn't require popular from us. He requires faithfulness. You know, one author wrote, preaching the cross invites derision, not applause. In the cross, God seeks not human ovations, but contrition. You know, if we want a message that gains the applause or ovation of people, we have the wrong message. But if we want a message that offers hope and salvation to people, we have the right message. We don't change the message to avoid offending people because if we change that message, yes, we no longer offend people, but we also most certainly will not save anybody. Therefore, the most loving thing a Christian can do, the most loving thing this church can do, is to not change the message that people find offensive because to do so would rid the cross of its saving power, and that would be the most unloving thing we could do to the world. Look with, me, look with me at verse 21 and 22. Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The reason we cling to the cross 
although it's in one sense divisive, offensive, we cling to it because it saves. Not the cross again, but as Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a crucified Christ. You see, the cross and a crucified Christ is God's answer to the problem of the world. It's only the cross that takes seriously the problems with the world because only the cross deals with the underlying systemic issue, which is human sin. The cross not only takes seriously the problem, our sin, but it also takes seriously our inability through human endeavors and efforts to address our own plight, to address our own condition. Because we're part of the problem. The same sin that's infected the world is the sin that infects us. It's like somebody who is blind trying to perform surgery on another blind person. Would you take that? Let's say that you are blind. And you go to a doctor. And you say, they say, I can fix your blindness. You say, awesome. They say, now take my hand and lead me to your eyes. And they say, why? you say, why? They say, because I'm blind too. Who here would allow that? Humans, we cannot fix ourselves. We need help from the outside. We need an external solution to address an internal issue. If you think about it, if we need this, this is, this is an impossible task. We are asking, we are needing the divine to enter the human. We need the sacred to enter the secular. We need the eternal one to enter time. We need the creator to enter his creation. We need the Christ to take the cross. And this is ludicrous. This is crazy. This is unreasonable. This is foolish. This is folly. But this is the wisdom of God. This is how God has come to rescue us. And it's so offensive that it confounds the world. It confuses the world. It's a stumbling block to the world. The world interprets the wisdom of God as foolishness because they have no idea of their true spiritual condition. They have no sense of their depravity and the depth of their sin. So that all God does in orchestrating to send his son to die for sinners seems over the top to the world. It's extravagant. It's unnecessary. Why would God, why does he need to do that? It's like the world is infected with stage four cancer, but they have no idea, and so they try to lessen the pain by taking ibuprofen. Right? They laugh at the wisdom of the doctors who tells them they need to go to the hospital. They need chemotherapy. And they say, chemotherapy? Medical treatment? That's folly. That's foolishness. All that for a headache? Because they have no idea. They have no understanding. So they're trying to cure their own cancer by popping Advil. And you say to them, that's not enough. And they say, wait, wait. It's extra strength. No, no, my friend. You need a Savior who will take your sin and die the death you should have died as a punishment for your disobedience. You need a Savior who will take God's anger and wrath that's directed at your sin and he will absorb it in himself on the cross. You need a Savior who is willing to do all of this because he loves you so much that he will gladly, for the joy set before him, take the punishment you deserve. Take your sin so that it will not ever be held against you. You need the cross of Christ because the cross saves. You don't just need some help. You don't just need a nudge, some encouragement, some direction. You need rescue. You need salvation. 
And it only comes from Jesus who took on the cross in your place because he loves you. You see, what seemed like folly to the world is actually great wisdom from God. And ultimately, as we see in verse 21, it says that God was pleased. God was delighted, pleased to use the foolishness of the cross because he knew that through it, he would save you. So my question is this. God was not in, God God himself was not too embarrassed by the cross. So why are we so often? If you think about it, who was more offended? Who's, who's more, should be more offended? I mean, think of the offense that the Son of God suffered. He was innocent but died a criminal's death. In, the, in that hour of his most desperate need, his closest friends abandoned him. He was stripped naked and strung on a, on a tree for those to spit at him and to strike him. He knew that through what he would do, For centuries, for millennia, people would laugh at him, scoff at him. And yet, despite this, he would come and he would bear that cross because he knew that that was the only way that we would be made right with God, that we would be restored spiritually and one day physically. No, God was pleased to use the folly of the cross if it meant saving you. This is how much he loved us. So then the question is, who are we to be ashamed of the cross? What right do we have to feel embarrassed about it? The cross of Christ saves. The cross of Christ has saved me. And so, as a cross-eyed church, we rejoice in the word of the cross because it saves A cross-eyed church is not embarrassed by the message of the cross because it saves. A cross-eyed church is committed to local outreach and personal evangelism and global missions because it saves. A cross-eyed church will cling to this gospel, this never-changing gospel in an ever-changing world because it saves. The cross of Christ saves, so we must be faithful to the message. Amen? Last Fact number four, the cross humbles. The cross humbles, so therefore, implication, we must never act superior to one another. The cross of Christ humbles, so we must never act superior to one another. There's no way to humble a person more than the cross. You know, we said at the beginning that the cross divides people into two groups, those who are saved and those who are perishing. And our response to those who in here are saved should not be pride but burden. Pride has no place for those who have been saved by the cross of Christ. Here's why. Because we did nothing. We did nothing to go from perishing to saved. We did nothing. There is nothing in us that makes us look at the word of the cross and say, you know what? That cross is God's wisdom. There is nothing in us that makes us look at the cross and say, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There is nothing in us that would make us arrive at that conclusion. So how are we saved? How is the foolishness made beautiful to us but not to others? Answer is found in verses 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to those who are called, 
if you see the cross as a saving power and your neighbor or your friend or your coworker doesn't, it's not because you're smarter than them. It's not because you're better than them. It's not because you're more spiritual than, than them. It's not because you're more humble to recognize your sin than they are. The only reason the offensiveness of the cross becomes a power and wisdom to you is because God has called you by grace. He has given you faith to believe. He has sent the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to open the eyes of your heart, to realize and recognize your sin and the need of Christ and his cross. It is God's calling, not your work. How can you hear that you're called and then boast or be proud? If you are a cross-eyed Christian, if you've been saved by the cross of Christ, it engenders humility, absolute, utter humility. This is the natural posture of those who recognize they're called by God's grace. You did not discover God. You did not find God. God discovered you. God came and he found you. So there's no reason that we must pretend to be morally or spiritually superior to anybody else. Don't act proud. Instead, we practice humility because we recognize that we're no better than any other person. It's only by God's grace that he called me. We sense our deep inadequacies. We sense our spiritual and our moral bankruptcy. And then with orphaned ears, we hear God's call. With beggar's hands, we receive grace from God. Unless the gospel grips your life and transforms you, you will always be a part of the offensiveness of the message. If you have pride, you know what will happen? Anytime you engage with a non-believer, they will say, look at that snob. He's always looking down at me. She always treats me as lesser because I don't believe as she does. He's always trying to make me look stupid or feel stupid when we talk about religion. She's always dismissing my doubts and my questions. If you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand the gospel, you will puff yourself up. But understanding that you have been caught in grace will humble you. As a cross-eyed Christian, as a cross-eyed church, may the grace of God's calling create in all of us a winsome humility and drown out our offensive pride. Do you understand that? As the cross of Christ becomes more and more real to you, may it create in your heart winsome humility, drown out offensive pride. The cross of Christ humbles so we must never act superior to another. Amen? Friends, week after week, I'm challenging you, I'm challenging us to make Jesus Christ, the word of the cross, the central point of everything that we do. Because if we miss that, we miss everything. If we lose sight of that, we lose sight of everything. And the truths of the cross, they direct, they transform the posture of this church. You gotta stop playing church. You know, you see little kids, they go play house. We can't be adults who play church. We must stop fooling around with the saving message of the cross, but instead become a people not only saved by the cross, but marked by the cross, transformed by the cross. So I invite you, pray with me this week. Pray these truths. Ask God that these implications are etched into our hearts. We are, no, we are of no good to the world, and we are not pleasing to God. If we know the cross divides, yet we have no burden for the perishing. If we know that the cross offends, but we are a greater offense. If we know that the cross saves, but in order to not be offensive, we change the message. 
or knowing the cross humbles, we act proud. If you understand the gospel, if you understand Christ's cross and all that it has done for us, it will create that burden for the lost so that we weep as Jesus weeps over, not Jerusalem, but this greater Philadelphia area. We will not be a part of the offense. We will be loving, winsome, compassionate, patient in our engagement, not offensive. But we will be faithful to the message. We will love others by actually not changing, not giving up the centrality of what we believe. And we will be the most humble people because we will never see other people as inferior to us. That's the mark of the cross and the transformation it has on the church. So imagine how good the church would be for the world. Imagine how glorifying the church would be to God if we took seriously the word of his cross and we let it transform us. Pray with me. Father, we respond to your word. We respond to all that you have spoken to us in prayer. Father, I pray and I hope that by by the power of your Holy Spirit, the truths of this cross will leave a lasting effect in our lives larger than just that we've been saved. But it will actually mark us. It will change us. It will lead us into humility. It will lead us into burden for others. Lord, it would lead us in all of these ways. And I pray that as you continually transform this church, as you help us to focus our eyes on Jesus, we would be of good to the world because the world would see. Although once hearing that the cross was folly, they would come to see it as the wisdom of God. Help that be true in our church. Father, as we leave, as we sing song of response, as we live our lives, I pray that the markings of the cross would be etched in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Having beheld God's majesty, acknowledging our sin and receiving his mercy, being brought into his family as members, hearing the message of his word, now God sends us out on his mission to be a cross-eyed people and a cross-eyed church. And we do so by receiving the benediction and hearing the charge and the dismissal. So now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who unites us in Christ and transform our our hearts to behold the glory and splendor of Jesus. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Amen. Now please hear the dismissal. God has shown you what is good and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Go in peace.